Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Andre from Mental Health, and I'm here with Vicky from Toronto in Canada. Vicky, do you want to introduce yourself for us? Hi, I'm Vicky Sergeopoulos. I'm a physician by training. I'm a, a psychiatrist, and I work in the area of community mental health. I'm also an administrator. I'm the physician-in-chief at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto and a professor at the University of Toronto. Yeah, and you gave a talk about homelessness and housing, which is a subject very close to my heart, um, a subject where there's very little research, um, and, yeah, something that we really need to do something about. Um, And as you said in your talk, traditional housing services often don't work for people um, who are homeless, who may may have mental health problems or substance misuse issues. Um, And as a result, this thing called Housing First has come about. So tell us about Housing First. Housing First came about in the 90s, mid to late 90s, um, in the United States originally. Uh, The founder is uh, Samson Barris, uh, another Greek-Canadian, who told me he was frustrated by seeing um, people that are homeless and were experiencing serious mental illness in and out of hospital. Um, and when he asked them what they needed to succeed in um, sustaining um, housing stability, he was told that they just needed housing first, as opposed to the usual uh, staircase model where they would go to a shelter and then um, pending good behavior and adherence to treatment and uh, abstinence from substances, they might uh, get access to a traditional housing model and then if um, they succeed in that over a period of time, after a few years, they would have access to permanent supportive housing. So he, um, I think, uh, took them on their advice and he developed a model and uh, it is based on the premise that housing is a human right. Um, people are, are getting immediate access to housing of their choice with supports from usually an assertive community treatment or an intensive case management team. Um, the supports are voluntary, that is, other than uh, getting in touch with a case manager uh, once a week. Uh, nobody has to take any medication, nobody has to uh, get into a treatment program they don't want to, and, um, and nobody has to stop, stop using any substances. It is based uh, very much on recovery principles, on uh, self-determination, empowerment and choice. And um, in uh, the model of full citizenship, uh, participants are tenants, uh, they have full tenancy rights, uh, and the support teams are off-site. So they are uh, supported in finding housing in the community of their choice, and no more than 10% of the units in that building are for uh, people served by the program to facilitate community integration. And as you say, it's been around for 25 years. How kind of internationally established is Housing First? I think we've seen a dissemination of Housing First uh, both in the US and Canada, um, as well as uh, Europe uh, and Australia. It feels like a really difficult area to to study. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're doing um, you know, a, a high-quality piece of research, a randomised controlled trial of Housing First, really complicated in that your population is, is complex. They have complex needs and they have you know, all sorts of comorbidities. 
and the intervention, I guess, is delivered alongside all sorts of other interventions that they may be getting. You're, you're just about to publish, or you're getting some results together at the moment. How, can you, how did you go about doing that work to make sure that you're really reliably looking at Housing First and its harms and benefits? We've already published work. Uh, we've published the, the phase one of their homes was study in 2015 and 2016. And we are uh, just about to publish the long-term outcomes of uh, Housing First based on our experience at the Toronto site where we had the opportunity to follow participants for up to six years. The best approach uh, to uh, understanding uh, complex interventions such as this is a randomized design where other confounding variables presumably are equally distributed in the intervention and the control group. Um, and with that, we have a fair amount of confidence uh, that um, the intervention works. So tell me about the numbers required for that to be statistically significant with this kind of population and all the complexity of the different factors and confounders. The um, uh, power uh, for the study, the study was powered to have at least 100 partic- participants um, per group uh, meaning at least 100 participants in the interven- each intervention and its control group uh, that is for both high-needs and modern-needs participants. And tell me a bit about that population. Presumably they're a pretty diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. The population uh, was recruited from shelters, uh, the streets, hospitals, um, uh, by a referral from community agencies serving the homeless population, uh, street outreach teams, uh, they had uh, diagnosed or undiagnosed previously mental health issues, uh, plus or minus addiction issues, um, physical health issues, uh, history of trauma was very common, as, in, as it is in many studies of homelessness. Um, in Toronto specifically, um, there was a high prevalence of uh, people that were racialized um, and immigrants, in other cities in the original at home trial, uh, we tried to rec- recruit diverse populations uh, over uh, representation of um, indigenous people in, in Winnipeg, for example, um, recruitment of a lot of people with substance use disorders in Vancouver, and um, recruitment from rural areas in Moncton. So we uh, try to test the intervention as, in as many contexts and with as many different subpopulations as it was possible in the Canadian context. Great. So I know loads of people are going to be interested in those results. What, what, what's the time scale on that? When do you think those will be coming out? Well, again, as uh, mentioned, the two-year outcomes of the study have already been published, and the six-year uh, outcomes... Uh, we hope to publish. Um, it has been accepted for publication. It's in press, and we hope that it will be out in the next couple of months. I suppose I'm interested in, more broadly now, your view on how we can improve mental health research for people with addiction problems, for people who are homeless, that they are excluded, not just from society, but also from the majority of research. What needs to change? I think we need to do pragmatic trials and uh, understand that they are messy, they are time-consuming, but they need to be trials in a real-world setting with real people. Uh, That is, we need to be recruiting the intended recipients of our interventions as opposed to some ideal sample that uh, we hope would have good outcomes and will uh, show our study to be successful. 
And in your experience, is it easy to get funding for that kind of work compared to other sorts of research? In mental health in North America, it's not as easy to um, get funding um, in large scale for our services research compared to, say, biological research, uh, but it is possible. Okay. And are you seeing that changing? Do you think the biological, you know, we hear all about the National Institute for Mental Health in, in the US that's, you know, funding these massive kind of genetics projects. Do you feel that that is changing now and that money is coming back into more kind of service interventions? Um, I would hope so, but um, I, I wouldn't be able to, to say with confidence because I, I don't um, submit uh, to, an, to NIMH. Sorry, to NIMH. I, um, I'm funded through um, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Yeah, okay. So this Housing First work in Canada has led to the development of the, the country's first recovery college, which sounds really interesting. Tell us about that. Um, with um, phase one of the At Home Social Study, we noticed improvements in housing stability, some possible improvements in other outcomes. Um, we didn't see great improvements in measures of recovery. Uh, we had used the recovery assessment scale, and despite um, very positive uh, narratives of, of recovery in the qualitative interviews, um, these findings were not reflected in measures of recovery and other measures that we used, whether it was community integration or quality of life. And so uh, searching for avenues to improve uh, outcomes for this population, not just housing stability, but recovery outcomes, and having heard from uh, our home or um, home CSWA participants themselves about the difficulty they had in transitioning from um, a life homeless to um, community housing, try to work with them to figure out what a recovery college uh, for this population specifically uh, might look like. And uh, we were lucky enough to be funded to implement uh, the uh, Supporting Transitions and Recovery Learning Center, uh, Recovery College in Toronto, Canada, um, dedicated to people that are homeless. And as you can imagine, uh, the curriculum and the services that were uh, co-produced um, reflected very much the needs of, of people and were responsive uh, very much to uh, input from people that are homeless. What's your sense about how well that kind of recovery model works for, you know, like thinking about somebody's homeless for 20 weeks compared to somebody's homeless for 20 years, going into that sort of system, presumably there's a massive variation in people's needs. Absolutely. And again, to clarify the study that we did, um, recruited chronically homeless people. Um, in, in Toronto alone, uh, the average duration of homelessness um, at the time of recruitment was uh, over five years. Now, that's very different. The needs are very different from those that may have been homeless for, for a few weeks. Um, and, um, and again, the input that we got from um, participants in at home CESWA and subsequently students at the Star Learning Center, it was input from those that use the services themselves and uh, input and suggestions varied over, over time and we tried to adapt our content to the... Um, student population at any one time. So yesterday, just finally, yesterday in the UK we launched a, a new centre for society and mental health. This is based at King's College. This has just had five years funding from one of the big research councils here. Um, and they're focusing on young people and marginalised communities and work and welfare. 
it's the first time we've had a research centre that is actually looking at the social determinants of mental health and linking these things and thinking, oh, yeah, what, what do we need to do to change society, to improve mental health? Mm-hmm. It seems bizarre to me that that is the case. What, what's your sense of the disconnect we seem to currently have between mental ill health and social determinants? I think the contribution of the social determinant is probably under-recognized. I think having a center of this sort, uh, it's a very welcome start, but you need um, a lot more uh, than one center, and you need uh, investments in this type of work uh, to make sure that um, we can understand not only how um, to deliver services to this population, but also the potential impact of our interventions and ways to improve outcomes um, that extend beyond uh, housing stability and encompass the broad range of uh, desired outcomes by participants of these interventions themselves. Mm-hmm.